1: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre.
0: Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and a co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Nicole Curato, a fellow in the Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra in Australia. Nicole is the author of Democracy in a Time of Misery, From Spectacular Tragedy to Deliberative Action, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. The book takes a fresh look at democracy by foregrounding the lens of human suffering to explore how well democracy serves people experiencing severe hardship. Nicole, your book focuses on disaster-affected communities struggling in the wake of tropical cyclone Haiyan, which struck the Philippines in November 2013. Some of our listeners may remember reports of that cyclone, but can you tell us a bit about what happened and what physical impact it had on the communities you studied?
1: Yes. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. So you're right, Typhoon Haiyan or Typhoon Yolanda, as it's often called in the Philippines, is often described as one that makes Hurricane Katrina look like a run-of-the-mill storm. Uh, One meteorologist described it in that manner, which is to say that just the physical intensity of the typhoon is really groundbreaking. What that means for the communities affected by the disaster is widespread devastation. The government pegged around 6,000 people um, who died in this disaster, but this is a conservative estimate. And of course, one of the lasting legacies of this typhoon is displacement. A lot of communities, particularly fishing communities that live along the coast, have been forced to move in places that basically remove them to access to their livelihood. And if we think about the context of Takloban, which is the ground zero of the disaster today, a lot of these communities are still trying to recover from that typhoon, well, we're almost close to 10 years, right? This happened to 2013. So the legacies are quite long
0: lasting. As I understand it, you started with the broad aim of understanding community participation in post-disaster reconstruction. What prompted you to narrow your focus to political participation in particular?
1: So my initial plan when I first went to the field was, I think, very controlling in a way. I had a checklist of what I wanted to observe, which is really to map the different forms of political participation in the aftermath of a disaster. In a way, it's a very straightforward project on disaster governance. But my lens actually shifted when I started conducting the interviews and started embedding myself in the field one of the comments that I often hear from my respondents is how miserable they feel in their everyday lives. So there are many ways that they put it. uh, Miserable, for example, if the is the local way of saying it. Others are saying that the suffering continues. Others use the term humiliated. They felt so humiliated for not having food that they can serve to their families to the point that they had to serve rice that's already rotten to their children. So we cannot study political participation or governance in this context without recognizing the emotional weight and the emotional toll that the disaster created with these communities. So this is the main inspiration for the study. Um, Misery is so obvious, but from a sociological perspective, what is obvious always needs to be unpacked. What is taken for granted needs to be questioned. And misery, obviously, after a tragedy is taken for granted. But as I embedded myself in the field, I started to realize that actually, Um, It's misery that enlivens democratic action.
0: And when you say enlivens democratic action, what exactly do you mean?
1: So closely linked to misery are attempts of disaster-affected communities to gain voice and visibility in the global public sphere. Communities use their suffering as a way to assert their visibility in a very crowded news cycle. So for example, I documented how protest movements Use the repertoire of misery to demand better treatment from the state. So, for example, in a mass grave, they put a wreath that says justice, uh, which is so symbolic. Obviously, a wreath is something that you bring to a mass grave to practice grief, but also it's grief that has a political demand, which is to say a lot of people unnecessarily died because the state was not prepared for a disaster of this caliber. Um, I also describe the mayor of Tacloban in a congressional inquiry where he testified about the horror that his family endured, and he cried in that congressional inquiry. And in the global public sphere, I remember a Filipino diplomat performing misery as he made an appeal for climate justice in the UN Climate Summit in Warsaw three days after the disaster. And His performance of misery galvanized the global climate change movement to basically use the Philippines as an example of this is what happens if we don't act on climate change. So from something so micro-political, like leaving a a wreath in a mass grave, to bringing the grief and misery to a global platform like the United Nations Climate Summit, Um, misery gives the connection to all of these political acts, and it gives visibility to political demands that we otherwise would not notice if these emotional performances were not used.
0: We'll come back to misery later, but some other key concepts you deal with, and these are concepts that are both widely invoked and too often used in deeply problematic ways, I think, are inclusion, voice, and accountability. What's your take on their misuse within the aid industry?
1: Right. So, One of the entry points for me, actually, in studying disasters is a project that my colleagues and I had entitled Humanitarian Technologies. And in the aid system, uh, one of the ways in which they tried to promote the principles of voice inclusion and accountability is to use technologically driven feedback mechanisms like text hotlines or um, using social media. But one of our observations in that research is that these technologies tend to obscure the demands of the recipients of aid. So instead of giving them voice and including them in the aid process, sometimes what is said in these technologically driven feedback mechanisms silence the real issues That the recipients actually face. And what we realize is that a lot of these communities actually prefer a more face-to-face engagement with humanitarian organizations because they prefer physical presence and physical interaction because communication is not just about texting a grievance or reporting poor behavior of humanitarian organizations. Communication is embodied. Communication requires seeing what's actually happening on the ground. So, I think one of the critiques that we put forward, and I also discussed this in the book, is that when we talk about the discourse of communicationist aid or accountability with humanitarian organizations, this shouldn't be limited to versions of voice that can easily be operationalized and be encoded in an Excel sheet that is reductionist. And there has to be a more holistic and meaningful way of respecting and giving voice to the citizens affected by the disaster.
0: But clearly, technology is part of that story. But even in face-to-face interactions, there's a whole politics of inclusion, voice, and accountability. Um, What about this broader issue, quite apart from the technological solutions you're talking about?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think this is where my initial interest actually lies. I wanted to find spaces for community participation, and what I've observed is that these spaces for community consultation uh, have become ritualistic. It's kind of the participation where, for example, a local leader calls for a village meeting, and then what you see in that village meeting are village leaders just giving token approval of a rehabilitation plan or whatever community plan there is. Um, That's on a very local, micro-political level. But I've also seen what they call um, collaborative city planning, where decision-makers are all invited inside an air-conditioned ballroom um, of downtown hotels, while those who are affected by the decisions are not part of those collaborative planning meetings. And in some meetings where the affected communities are invited, the inquisitive community members are sometimes stigmatized as poor team players. Um, This is especially the case for citizens who demand, for example, an audit of how the donations are spent. Um, They're often uh, silenced by statements like, it's not the time for politicization, it's time for mourning, it's time for compassion, stop asking questions. So you're absolutely right. Issues of voice and accountability well, they're very important principles, but how they're operationalized in practice can be corrupted and can be undermined by everyday practice, especially practices that look down on the political contributions of ordinary citizens.
0: And this concept of everyday practice is, of course, one that you come back to again and again in the book. Let's turn to the empirical chapters now, each of which deals with a particular arena for the production and circulation of discourse and the role of everyday claim-making within them. The first of these chapters charts how a global audience for the tragedy came into effect and what impact their presence had on narratives about affected communities. Can you talk us through what those impacts were?
1: Yes, so in this chapter, I think I described it as um, the chapter on spectacular publics. And I was talking about how print, broadcast and digital media's dramatic portrayal of the disaster created a global audience that is willing to bear witness to the tragedy. So we're talking about journalists, uh, celebrity humanitarians, and while some scholars would actually argue that the use of celebrity humanitarians and celebrities in general cheapen the humanitarian cause, actually, I, I push back against that. I actually argue that the spectacular, that spectacles in general are not portrayals of disaster pornography, but they can actually... Uh, allow communities to break in very saturated conversations taking place online. You know, some people would probably say that, for example, why should we celebrate Rihanna's Instagram post, right? Why should we celebrate a pop star calling her fans to support the Philippines? It's because it's an act of redistributing voice. Someone who has voice redistributes voice and generates global attention to respond in a humanitarian manner. It's not necessarily political. They're not exactly assigning blame and accountability. They don't necessarily foreground the political side of the disaster. But it's nevertheless an achievement in a global public sphere that has fleeting attention spans. And so that chapter on spectacular and surrogate publics make a case on how seemingly non-political actors can actually have the power to redistribute voice and attention in the global public sphere.
0: Now, you've brought in the focus of your next chapter in that answer, which is surrogate publics, which are NGOs and those sorts of organizations. How do these surrogate publics emerge, and in what circumstances do they lead to a state of exception?
1: Yes, so the term surrogate publics is a term I borrow from Laura Montanaro. It basically means self-appointed actors making claims on behalf of affected communities who didn't necessarily authorize them to speak on their behalf, but they do it anyway. So surrogate publics, for the most part, put forward discourses that call for assistance on behalf of the disaster-affected communities. My favorite example is Rihanna's Instagram post. She's an example of a surrogate representative of disaster-affected communities by using the voice of care. So she encourages her fans to extend support and aid to the disaster-affected communities. But surrogate publics are not limited to humanitarian organizations or celebrity humanitarians in the case of Rihanna. Sometimes the voice of justice contests the voice of care So what I mean by this is sometimes the voice of care is successful in bringing global attention to the spectacle of the disaster. Uh, But the voice of justice, these are activist groups, for example, the voice of justice sustains the political conversation beyond the immediate aftermath of the tragedy by demanding accountability from the state, for example, for avoidable deaths. Now, the question is, To what extent are these voices temporary, meaning are they just emerging because of the disaster, or does this become the state of exception? Does the context of the tragedy become a permanent state of exception where constant calls for humanitarianism and exceptional global support is mobilized to support uh, these communities? So that is very much an ongoing debate. But I think the key message of this chapter is that we should probably stop pinning the voice of care or humanitarianism against the voice of justice. Sometimes they're mutually beneficial. The voice of care, humanitarians bring attention to the spectacle, and the voice of justice of activists who demand accountability build on the conversation first created by humanitarians, and they sustain that conversation by calling for accountability.
0: And I guess the next question then is where are the voices of the communities themselves? What kinds of voices do they have and how well do those voices compete in these different arenas?
1: Yes, so this is actually now the bulk of the book because, you know, when we read news about disaster affected communities, we tend to take for granted that these communities have very different views. They assume very different voices, they have different perspectives, they have different ideas about the future, and they have different aspirations. So some of these community members, for example, create what I called a contestatory public. Where, for example, they use their mourning and they blend that mourning with indignation. So some communities, for example, want to uh, disrupt the dominant perspective of Filipinos as disaster victims, as ideal victims, you know, uh, victims who are grateful, victims who are not political. They contest that. Instead, they want a discourse that assigns blame to officials. And they do this through grassroots organizing, through sorrowful protests, uh, very creative forms of protests as well, like street theaters to communicate anger and grief. But others don't like that very confrontational and politicized approach to disaster response. Others are more collaborative. So one chapter of the book discusses or describes collaborative publics. These are communities that think that their misery should be overcome um, by hope. And here I document community-driven development programs instigated by NGOs and community organizers, uh, usually funded by foreign donors, and their main repertoire is, is deliberation. They deliberate with NGOs, they deliberate amongst themselves to create a model community that can create, for example, climate resilient homes. So they're quite different from the contestatory public. And then uh, there is a chapter that I wasn't anticipating I'd write, but because I was on the field around 2016 before the Philippine presidential elections, I saw the rise of what I describe as populist publics. And here I'm describing my experience in the field when President Rodrigo Duterte, then candidate Rodrigo Duterte, uh, ran for president. So that chapter in populist publics is, I think, for me, the hardest to write because that chapter unpacks the political underpinnings of President Duterte's popularity in disaster-affected communities. Um, To me, the puzzle is, how come a community that has suffered from so many deaths during the typhoon, be the same community that supports the deaths of suspected drug addicts as President Duterte promised. Um, And then the last kind of vignette or portrait of disaster-affected communities that I talked about is what I called patient publics. And here I'm talking about people who are forced into waiting, people who wait for relief goods, for temporary shelters, who wait for promises from government that remain unrealized, And I think the key insight here is that when we look at disaster-affected communities who remain patient to receive government support, there is a tendency for us to judge them as communities that have no political agency. But what I've actually observed um, when I spent a lot of time with these communities is that patience is actually quite strategic. They know when to follow up, let's say, with a national housing authority They know when to step back so as not to annoy street-level bureaucrats. There's a lot of strategic decisions and constant negotiations on the part of patient publics, and they know how to navigate unequal power relations given their limited conditions. So those are kind of the highlights of the different publics that I've witnessed among disaster-affected communities. I think the last point I want to say here is I don't have any favorites. I don't think one kind of public is better than the other. And it's also possible that one individual actually fits the profile of all those publics. Um, But the point is, these are the different kinds of publics that emerge after the disaster.
0: So this really leads me to my next question, which is having identified these four different kinds of publics within the community, how does that coalesce within the overall community and the community's responses to outside influences?
1: Right. So this is the more challenging argument um, that I make in the book that has also been a subject of some criticisms, because what connects all of these, I think, is a celebration of everyday achievements of disaster-affected communities. Um, These are everyday achievements in the sense that they maintain, for example, their visibility in the global public sphere as the spectacle of the disaster wanes. Um, I think being able to build climate-resilient homes is a very important everyday achievement. But if we look at it from a macro-political perspective, some critics would say, yeah, but that didn't change the landscape of Philippine politics. Or yeah, that protest was so spectacular, it landed on the front pages of newspapers, but so what? People are still hungry. And so that's the kind of dismissive discourse that the book is pushing back against, because it's not just pure celebration of these micro-political achievements. It's an argument to say, That democracy entails everyday labor. It's about the hard work of communities and the incremental achievement of these communities that allow them to forge a future that they created themselves. And I think that is not an insignificant achievement, especially if our baseline is a community that literally lost everything after a disaster. I think that's an achievement worth celebrating.
0: I'd like to take a step back now and discuss some of the overarching concerns of the book. And the first one is about positionality, which of course is always important, but especially when we're studying so such an obviously emotive topic. You say in the book that you adopt a position of agnostic solidarity. What is this and why do you think it's the most ethical stance to take?
1: Agnostic solidarity is a perspective that I borrow from Lily Kuliaraki. And the question here is how do we study the suffering of others in an ethical manner? So, From my perspective, the way that we can best study the suffering of others is not to be patronizing or not to just overly privilege the voice of the narrator, but also practice some form of agonism in the sense that there's a readiness on my part to contest the claims that they make and to treat them as political actors who are able to defend their claims and defend their views. I think that is an ethical disposition when it comes to this research, because I fully recognize my positionality as a researcher. I'm Filipino, but I don't know the language. I'm fair-skinned, which is an indicator of class privilege in the Philippines. I'm foreign educated, and all sorts of class indicators are there. But I also don't want to assume that I have the power all the time in that relationship because I'm the outsider in the field. I am the one who has no lived experience of the disaster. I'm the one who's trying to learn from my respondents. That is why I think one way of problematizing that power relation is to have that agonistic relationship that, yes, I'm in solidarity with you, that, yes, you have my sympathies, but also I will not be afraid to problematize our power relations. I'm very much willing to engage with your views, question your views if I disagree with it, and we can deliberate on this as we conduct our interviews. And have our informal conversations. And I think that's a productive way of doing research, especially when I started shadowing the supporters of President Duterte, because obviously my political views are very different from my respondents' political views. And I think I was able to capture their narratives in a more authentic manner because I allowed them to defend their views. I allowed space for that instead of me just being a passive researcher and documenting what they think and why they support a man that I
0: disagree with. Another key issue raised in the book is the role of emotion in political life. We've already gotten a sense of how that plays out empirically in your field site, but what can you say about its theoretical importance?
1: Right. So I think this is where the analysis of the book actually takes off, because the book is not a celebration of misery as an emotion that enlivens democratic action, and then the argument ends there. Because I'm also very critical about the role of emotions in political life. So, what I mean by this, and I discuss this in the conclusion, is that while the communities affected by the typhoon were able to claim some political victories by mobilizing their suffering when they make political claims, I now wonder well, how about communities who are also suffering from other tragedies whose suffering is not a spectacular? as the world's strongest storm. So I ask who, for example, bears witness to the sorrow of farmers starving from drought? Or who cares about asthmatic children who breathe ambient air pollution? So what becomes of the collective miseries of people who could not find the same coverage of expressive modes of making like my disaster-affected communities did? So While the empirical chapters of the book provide evidence for emotions' productive political power, I also recognize that there are what I refer to as hierarchies of misery. And I think there are ethical stakes in this line of inquiry. So, for example, some emotion-oriented campaigns connect the shock effects of suffering to viewers' feelings of guilt or pity. Therefore, we, we are brought to action because we feel guilty. But then I ask, what about other forms of misery that are not that spectacular? How about slow violence, invisible disasters? So it's a puzzle for me, which I think is still very much an open question, is what is the ethical and democratizing response to this trend? Milan Condera refers to this as um, suffering contests. Some people from Twitter call this oppression Olympics. But how can politics driven by emotion address the so-called suffering context? How can we democratize this? Um, and that's why I think I go back to agonistic solidarity because I think it's by questioning why some suffering are getting more attention than others can we recognize the inequalities, Of voice uh, when it comes to people who are suffering. Not everyone is suffering equally. Some forms of suffering are getting more attention than others. Um, Judith Butler talks about the uneven valuation of lives. So it's through this perspective of agonistic solidarity that we can also start questioning our assignment of attention and political support to different forms of suffering.
0: This brings me to your broader conceptual framework, which is, of course, deliberative democracy. Can you walk us through exactly what deliberative democracy is and how it differs from other major approaches to the study of democracy?
1: I'm so glad you asked that because this is obviously uh, my day job. So deliberative democracy basically is both a normative theory and a political project. As a normative theory, it basically wants to see a world or a society where the collective decisions we make are based on good reasons. So the idea is that we live in a society that is sensitive to good reasons, and we become sensitive to good reasons when we deliberate, meaning when we exchange our perspectives, when we reflect on our own views, and when it's democratic, meaning we consider as many views as possible of everyone affected by that decision. So I know it's always criticized for sounding so fluffy and so idealistic. This is why in my own work, I describe it as a political project, that there are actually practical reforms that we can implement in society for the world to approximate that ideal. And this is why in the book, for example, I gave the example of collaborative publics, Or communities who learned the art and politics and the grit required to deliberate amongst themselves. So, for example, disaster-affected communities themselves deliberating on where they want to relocate, whether they should relocate, and deliberating with government, putting forward concrete arguments to government so they can secure outcomes when they negotiate uh, with their local governments. So it's very much a real-world political project committed to the norms of reason-giving and inclusion.
0: So as a normative project, what could governments or NGOs do in a post-disaster context to actually increase the likelihood of deliberative democracy working?
1: Yeah, so I think this is the frustrating part for me, because the template already exists. The slogans of community-driven participation, uh, the slogan of communication is aid, already gives this infrastructure for deliberative democracy to thrive. The principle of voice and accountability are very much deliberative principles, that even the, the slogan, building back better, which is now used as a Joe Biden slogan, but really It originated from Bill Clinton's work responding to the Indian Ocean tsunami. And part of the Building Back Better framework is for communities themselves to drive their own recovery, meaning we rely on the practical reason and processes within communities to make decisions that affect their lives. So the point is the infrastructure is there. But what stops us from fully realizing deliberative ideals, I think, is this mental barrier for a lot of decision makers to appreciate um, the wisdom of ordinary citizens. There is a lot of misconceptions that citizens cannot govern themselves, that citizens are not educated. But there have been a lot of empirical studies in the field of deliberative democracy and development that actually demonstrates that when you actually give ordinary citizens the chance to make their case about a decision that they want to take, whether it's post-disaster reconstruction of climate-resilient homes or creating new livelihood programs, citizens actually have a lot of ideas. These ideas just have to be connected on the level of decision-making. So deliberative democracy can thrive in post-disaster contexts. The trouble is the resistance of people in power refusing to share the power.
0: Okay, and that's not surprising, right? So we've got this dilemma. People don't want to share their power. They're the ones with the power. How do we break that down? How do we help them to reorient so that they are prepared to share the power in a way that creates better outcomes? So
1: the most successful countries that have institutionalized deliberative democracy Are Ireland and Belgium. And the commonality of both countries is that politicians willingly engaged in citizen deliberation or sponsor processes of citizen deliberation because they're suffering from legitimacy deficits. So the Irish case, for example, just came out of a financial crisis. Belgium adopted a lot of deliberative processes when they became, I think, they held the record as the country that took the longest time to form a government. I think they beat Iraq in that track record. The message here actually is quite inspiring, that deliberative democracy thrives in very dark times, in moments when countries hit an impasse, when the political establishment is delegitimized. This is where we can find avenues. For deliberative processes to claim space in mainstream politics. So, I'm not so pessimistic about the prospects of people in power sharing power. And I think, especially in dark times, I think these are good moments for citizens to assert the creation of deliberative processes so they can be heard better.
0: It strikes me that both those examples are drawn from Western Europe. How do you think this translates into less established political communities like those of the Philippines? Mm -hmm.
1: They're both from Western Europe, but I think the bigger characteristic of both countries is they're deeply divided. And that is also a characteristic that we see not just in Western liberal democracies, but in many societies in the global South. So when I actually think about the case of the Philippines, and I've just written a a book chapter about deliberative democracy in the Philippines, and I was looking at some historical precedents. When deliberative practices did thrive, I realized that they actually were thriving in moments of authoritarian rule. So, for example, underground resistance movement during the Marcos dictatorship developed the norms of deliberation because they needed to imagine what a society looks like once the dictator is removed from power. And, of course, that requires a lot of inclusive deliberation with with the widest sector of society to come up with that vision. That requires deliberation. I was shocked to find out that the revolutionary movements in the colonial period were actually big deliberators and they deliberated for this whether it's the right time to fight the Spaniards or not. So... There is an argument that could be made that deliberative democracy is not just a Western import. Some historians actually say that at least in Southeast Asia, in pre-colonial times, just because of the sheer diversity of communities, they had to develop norms of deliberation as well to maintain smooth interpersonal relations. So I would affirm what John Dryzek claims, that deliberation is a universal human capacity. The trouble is that our current political structures discourage deliberation because a lot of our politics is governed by, well, cheap political point scoring and hyper-partisanship, but it doesn't mean that this can't be promoted, especially from the grassroots.
0: I guess my final question comes back to the bigger implications of your work. I mean, it's very grounded in this specific case of the Philippines and within the Philippines, a specific case of post-disaster communities in Tacloban. But how does it progress our broader understanding of democratic practice? I'm particularly interested here in your take on the different ways of paying attention that your protagonist engaged in and how these responses interact with different forms of claim-making.
1: Yes, I think the book's ideas are very much resonant today as the whole world is suffering from this pandemic. And I think the message of the book, especially the reminder for us to be more cognizant of the hierarchies of misery, I think that's very relevant today. At the start of the pandemic, the slogan was, uh, we're all in this together. Uh, but the book is actually already giving a reminder of problematizing who counts as we, and the we are in this together. And I used that when I talked about people-led recovery. Who is the people? How do we construct that? So the book is a reminder that, claims of unity and depoliticized claims of humanitarianism have underpinning political questions, and these political questions are enacted in everyday practice, Um, that we have to be cognizant of how everyday actions that may seem non-political are actually manifestations or actually demands to redistribute power, and in that process, try to assert a different kind of future that we may not see now, but we are probably enacting already with the way we contest power. That is how the the ideas of the book travel in any context defined by tragedy, defined by suffering, and any community that tries to recover from collective trauma. There's something that can be drawn from the insights of the book with how we use our misery to enliven democratic action, also how we use our misery sometimes to malign other forms of suffering. And I think it's that awareness uh, that we need to take with us when we think about global experiences of suffering.
0: That call to action is a nice place to end. But just before we wrap up, would you like to tell us a bit about what you're working on currently?
1: Right. Well, Michelle, I've joined the disinformation bandwagon. So I'm collaborating uh, with Ross Tafsel from the ANU and Jonathan Corpus Ong from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and Harvard Kennedy School. And we're trying to develop a critical understanding or what we call critical disinformation studies and try to challenge the dominant narratives of how disinformation spread across the world. And we do that by grounding Our understanding of disinformation, again, to the everyday experiences of ordinary citizens, from citizens who are receiving and consuming fake news content, and I'm using fake news with scare quotes, to troll operators, to fake account operators, and to the architects of disinformation. So it's very exciting. There's a lot to unpack, and potentially theoretically rich.
0: Thanks, Nicole, for joining me on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss democracy in a time of misery, from spectacular tragedy to deliberative action. Thanks, Michelle. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you'd enjoyed this episode, you can find conversations about hundreds of other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. Download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I look forward to joining you soon for another conversation about the Southeast Asia related book.